FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I have got to say that I have been looking forward to hearing from the panel we've assembled for today's show as I ask them about major political stories in the news. And uh, so I want to get right to them and uh, begin our conversation. It's Friday, which means my partner is Jim Galloway, the former political um, columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, in the midst of working on a book, which I'm sure will become a nationwide bestseller the day it's released, Mr. Galloway. Yeah, 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 probably not. Uh, I'm just, I'm just kind of <laughs> excited to be here today. I, I'm, I'm just wondering whether you're, I'm, I'm going to get charged tuition, you know, with, with these people, <laughs> yeah, with yeah. these people talking. Yeah, we have a great group of political science professors, Jim. I assume you're not talking about the subject of your book openly at this point. Is that what I should not take yet. from the way you just? <laughs> okay, not, not yet. It's a, let's say, let's say, let's say Georgia politics will be a topic. Is, is, All is right. the topic. That sounds great. That sounds great. Thank you for that. Well, somebody who has enormous experience in writing books about politics is with us today, Professor Charles Bullock of the University of Georgia. Chuck, I, I've lost count. How many books have you published uh, related to uh, politics, much of it in Georgia and the South? It, it's almost up to 40. <laughs> oh, okay. Well... <laughs> And you, too, are working on a new book that perhaps you're not ready to talk about the subject of. Well, yeah, it's about two-stage elections. So the traditional runoff, the instant runoff, top two voting in California, jungle primaries in Louisiana, so those things. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we're glad that you're taking time with, to be with us today. And we're certainly glad to have from Emory University uh, political science professor Andra Gillespie, who, of course, is also the director of the James Weldon Institute, Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Hi, Andra. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm I'm terrific. Uh, speaking of books, uh, it's the last book that I think I'm aware of that you published was on the impact of President Obama's uh, presidency in a variety of areas related to how he dealt with race. Fair enough way of describing <laughs> yes. it? Correct. Called Race All right. in the Obama well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. And your colleague now, Professor Emeritus of Political Science, Professor Alan Abramowitz. And, and Alan, as long as we're talking about books, uh, you uh, have written a number of books yourself. And, and one of the books that really... Um, became part of the political vocabulary was uh, your uh, book on uh, negative partisanship. Yes? Well, negative partisanship is something that, you know, I've been interested in for some time. And I think um, over over the last few years, I think what's become sort of part of the vocabulary, uh, people talking about what's been happening, you know, in, in American politics. And, and negative partisanship has only grown as toxicity in our politics has become uh, yeah. more and more a part mm -hmm. of, a, of what we deal with day in and day out. So, okay, we've established we've got a very smart group of people with us 
today. Uh, Alan, uh, very quickly, there we're going to very quickly cover a couple of uh, stories that just developed uh, in the hours last few hours, and you pointed out one of them before the show. Uh, the uh, Department of Labor has released jobs, 339,000 new jobs created mm-hmm. uh, last month. That's a that's a huge number. Um, the interesting thing is that the job report, from my point of view, doesn't seem to have as much impact on the president sitting in office as perhaps it might have at one point before. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. Yeah, this was a very strong jobs report. They actually did revise upward the uh, numbers from the previous couple of months as well. Um, so what we've seen, you know, th- pretty much throughout the Biden administration has been very strong job growth. Um, of course, we've also had high inflation. And so that's kind of offset some of the positive impact of the strong job growth. Um, in general, I think what we can say is that, you know, the economy doesn't have as strong a, a, an influence on public opinion and on elections as it as it once did. And that's largely a result of um, increasing partisan polarization and the, the fact that voters uh, tend to interpret any in economic information um, that they receive through a partisan lens. And therefore, uh, any positive numbers, you know, will just be uh, interpreted uh, according to whether you're a Democrat or Republican. If you're a Democrat, you think that's good news for Biden. He's doing a great job. But if you're a Republican, you're going to say, no, he's not really dealing with inflation. And anything good that's happening is a result of the policies of the previous administration under President Trump. All right. Um, we're going to watch that and uh, and uh, uh, see whether or not this also leads the Fed to raise interest rates uh, once again with a strong jobs report. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk very briefly about the other story that broke overnight. And Jim Galloway, you watched it. Um, the Washington Post reported that Fonnie Willis appears to be expanding her investigation uh uh, into uh, the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And le- we're not going to be able to get into a lot of detail because there's a lot to absorb here. But here's the lead of that story. An Atlanta area, investig- area investigation of alleged election interference by former President Donald Trump and his allies has broadened to include activities in Washington, D.C. and several other states, according to two people with knowledge of the probe a fresh sign that prosecutors may be building a sprawling case under Georgia's racketeering laws. So, Jim, uh, the basis of this entire report is that Georgia does have very liberal uh, RICO laws, and it appears that Fonnie Willis is now looking at ways in which Trump and his allies have looked to other other states to see how they uh, pursued their efforts to call the 2020 election a fraud. Yeah, specifically, she's she's looking for information out of the Simpatico Software Systems and Berkeley Research Group. They, they, these were two firms that that the Trump campaign uh, paid uh, about a million dollars to uh, in the days following the the the, the twenty twenty election to to find proof of of fraud. And of course, they didn't, and they buried the results. But but Willis wants to know what that what this firm was doing in Georgia and in other states, and that's the kind of the key that that tells you that this is this is going in a, in a, in a racketeering uh, uh, probe uh, direction. Um, as I said, there's a lot to unpack there, and we'll watch to see what happens uh, in the days ahead as people respond to uh, this report. So we'll talk about it in more detail 
uh, next week on our shows. But I'd really, with this panel, want to turn to what has been the biggest political news story of the week, and that has been the um, back and forth, the debate over the compromise uh, that uh, the White House and Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, were able to put together to raise the debt ceiling. Um, Chuck Bullock, uh, last night, the Senate uh, approved the compromise. I think the vote was 63-36, so it was done in a bipartisan fashion, just as it had been on the House side. President Biden's going to sign it as quickly as possible, and tonight he intends to give a speech to the nation about what happened. Um, so I think what's important now, we, you know, clearly the possible practical day-in and day-out um, consequences of failing to raise the debt ceiling were very substantial for millions of people. Um, but now that it's been resolved, I think it's perfectly reasonable to turn to see what the political outcomes are. Let me start with you, Chuck Bullock. Uh, talk about um, who, how you see this having played out, uh, the benefits to President Biden, the benefits to uh, Speaker McCarthy, how it affected the far right of the Republican Party in Congress, wh whatever you want to bring to the table. And I want to get everybody involved in that conversation. Well, as Winston Churchill once said, the United States will always do the right thing, but only after they try everything else. And that's what we've gotten to here. <laughs> yeah, we do see you know, the majorities in the House and the Senate, opposite parties, but they did at least get this done. Um, I was a bit surprised that the margin of the House, excuse me, the Senate was lower than the margin of the House, because usually we think of the Senate as being the, the adults in the room. And yet here you had 36 senators vote against it, where in the House it was more like a three to one margin, which it got passed. You know, five, four or five Georgians voted against it. And interestingly, it was a bipartisan group of Georgians who voted against it. So several very conservative Republicans voted against it because it didn't cut the budget enough. And then the representative of the 5th District in Atlanta voted against it because she was concerned that it did cut some programs too much. I think it was primarily that uh, job requirement that's being attached to folks who are between 50 and 54 who are getting uh, food stamps. So you could look at this and say, yeah, this was a good compromise and that the people at the extremes you know, both found problems with it. And so although we don't think of there being a lot of members of the House of the Senate who, uh, as moderates. Nonetheless, what passes for a moderate today did come together and they got it enacted. So yeah, and also they've taken this off the table for two years. And notice also they didn't set a limit and say, well, it's going up to 33 trillion or 35 trillion. It's kind of no limits. So, you know, it'll go to whatever it goes to over the next couple of years before we have to take another look at this in 2025. Andra? So, you know, there are a lot of interesting things that are going to come from this. So politically speaking, they have insulated themselves from having to deal with this again during the rest of President Biden's first term. And this is also, of course, going to coincide with the next set of congressional elections. When this comes up, you know, one of the issues that was raised was whether or not budgets were actually going to be passed in a timely order or whether or not we're going to have to continue to rely on um, continuing resolutions in order uh, to propose spending. And so we'll see whether or not that sticks and works going forward, uh, whether or not we're actually going to move back towards something of regular order, um, you know, and probably moving into the discussion of kind of who wins and who loses, 
I think there's still a question of whether or not we see somebody on Kevin McCarthy's right flank attempt a motion to vacate because they were truly upset by this. Um, but I think that this shows that especially with the left and the right being upset by the compromises that were made, that this is a hallmark to the fact that there are compromises where not everybody gets what they want, but most people can find some consensus on one, we have to do this, and it's important to do this, but then two, that there's enough in the bill that satisfies everybody. So there are going to be people who are on the polls ideologically who are never going to be satisfied with the compromises that were made, and they're always going to be bitter about this bill. But everybody else in, in, in what, what was a, a big middle um, were able to find something that was important, if only that, you know, we didn't want to default on our debt. Ellen? This was something very unusual in, in, in American politics in recent years, and that was a, a coalition of the center, you know, of Democrats and Republicans coming together and the opposition being found primarily on the far right. Uh, within the Republican Party, that, that was the biggest source of opposition, and then somewhat on the far left of the Democratic Party. I think, however, we shouldn't overinterpret this, uh, and, and, and we shouldn't assume that this is something that's likely to happen very often. I think it's very unlikely to happen very often. And, and let's not forget that what it took to make this happen was basically <clears throat> the sword of Damocles hanging over the, the Congress and, and the the the, the dire threat that would, would was posed by a potential default. Uh, and, and without that, you know, I, I, I think that's very unlikely that something like this would have happened. So Biden's clearly a big winner in this. I mean, really, he got um, you know, most of the things that he wanted from this. He was, you know, the, the cuts that were, that were put in place really did not undermine his major legislative uh, achievements and programs. Um, McCarthy, I think, solidifies his position within uh, the Republican caucus. Um, and uh, I actually think it's unlikely that there will be an attempt uh, to, to remove him as speaker uh, that, that, uh, uh, based on this. I mean, I, I think what we saw is that is that the Freedom Caucus is, you know, they yelled and screamed and jumped up and down, uh, made a lot of noise. And, and in the end, uh, they, they had very little influence on the rest of their colleagues who just went ahead and did what they thought was necessary. So I think the Freedom Caucus's uh, influence here within the Republican Party has been somewhat probably somewhat diminished uh, as a result uh, of this uh, vote. Yeah, uh, it, it, Bill, when, uh, well, for, to, to Alan's point, uh, I mean, we need to note that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, was uh, voted, voted to approve this deal. Uh, she was, she was at McCarthy's, uh, McCarthy's side, but uh I'd like to focus a little bit on 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 President Joe Biden because it's, this is uh, he, he 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 has not really kind of spiked the football, if you will, yet. I think that's coming tonight, uh, and 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 I'll I'll be interested in seeing how 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 he does that. But 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 Andre, you wrote the book on on Obama, who had to deal with this this situation. How would you compare? How Biden handled this the the, the this debt ceiling crisis with with how Obama did. 
So the question that I was interested in in my book is how African-Americans interpreted uh, his policy behaviors, whether or not they wanted more than what they got, and also how they interpreted congressional opposition. Um, and so it would be really hard to disentangle kind of the racial element um, of this when you're asking African-Americans what they thought. And African-Americans did think that some of the opposition was actually racially motivated. Um, you know, one of the things that is going to be interesting is that that standoff uh, in uh, uh 2011 or 2013 was, um, uh, you know, then led to a downgrading of our credit rating. Um, and this is something that uh, one of my friends at uh, Christina Greer's now at Fordham University had looked at at the municipal level. And so it becomes a question of does this standoff then lead to, you know, Moody's downgrading our, our, our credit rating, right? Because they see some instability and they just see um, a lack of, of, of consensus here in doing that. Um, and so what Greer argued was that this is more likely to happen with a black executive than with a white executive uh, because of the racial animus that might sort of promote the, the cooperation. I think in this context, we're focused on the partisan polarity and we're not focused on the racial polarity, obviously, because President Biden is not um, you know, isn't, you know, it, you know, isn't black. And so like, I think that that's kind of the difference in terms of sort of thinking about this, but they both were operating in periods of, you know, really bad partisan polarization that uh, brought us to this level of brinksmanship. It's just that there may have been another undercurrent there based on the identity of the person who was sitting in the office. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, Chuck, I let pick up on, on uh, what Jim Galloway is talking about, that, that, that the president, uh, through the process, never once spiked the football when he thought he'd won some gains. Peter Baker, I thought, had a really uh, terrific piece in the New York Times today uh, dealing with that and the larger issue of how the compromise was made. But here's uh, uh, from uh, the Baker article. Uh, he starts by quoting Biden himself. Biden saying to reporters, why would Biden, referring to himself, say what a good deal it is before the vote? You think that's going to help me get it passed? No, that's why you guys, meaning the media, don't bargain very well. The president calculated that the more he bragged that the deal was a good one for his side, the more he would inflame Republicans on the other side, jeopardizing the chances of pushing the agreement through the narrowly divided House. His reticence stood in striking contrast to his negotiating partner, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who has been running all over the Capitol, asserting that the deal was a historic victory for fiscal conservatives. F interesting in terms of his uh, of Biden, who he considers a fairly shrewd negotiator after all his years in the Senate. But also on the other side of that, Kevin McCarthy, Chuck, had more of a reason to need to triumph, uh, to, to trumpet his successes than uh, Biden did uh, since he had to try to win over those far-right Republicans. Yeah, what McCarthy had to do was to convince enough Republicans that indeed he had gotten enough carved out of the budget. Biden doesn't score any points by saying, no, 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 they didn't touch anything. Indeed, what he does is risk the alienation of the critical share of Republicans he's got to have, both in the House and the Senate. Because remember, we haven't mentioned this yet, but, you know, you needed 60 votes in the Senate. 51 wasn't going to do it. Where if you could get 218 in the House, you were home free. So you know, gloating on Biden's part would not score any points. Uh, Kevin McCarthy's gloating, uh, did it turn off some of the more liberal Democrats in the House? Probably not. You know, they were probably already turned off. 
And also, again, you had this huge margin house, so you could see Nikema Williams walk away from this and not endanger the enactment, where if you alienated just a few, uh, say, liberal uh, Democratic senators and the, on the uh, Republican, more conservative senators on the uh, Senate side, yeah, it might not have gotten to the 60 votes, or they might have passed conceivably some of the 11 amendments were offered. And if that happened, then you had to send this back to the House, and you you know, then you probably run out of time. So, yeah, Biden just wanted to kind of you know, step back and hope this thing goes through. Yeah, um, you know, Andre, I want to bring you and Alan back in. Let me add a couple of quick elements here. Number one, uh, Jim pointed out that Marjorie Taylor Greene very shrewdly stuck with Speaker McCarthy. He is the guy who gives her power that she's never had before. Um, but just to show you how quickly you can grow get out of favor with the far right, Steve Bannon on his podcast the other night uh, called for uh, a, a true uh, MAGA Republican to challenge Marjorie Taylor Greene for the, in the primary in the 14th uh, district. So we'll see how long that sort of thing lasts. But um, anyhow, go ahead and make your point about all this. I mean, I somehow suspect that Green is 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 going to be able to withstand a primary challenge from her right flank, um, if only because it would be hard to find somebody who is more right than she is. Um, you know, in terms of just trying to think about and, and 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 Chuck mentioned this in terms of who has the kind of liberty and who has the buffer to be able to do something that looks a little uh, counterintuitive. Nakima Williams has the buffer to do it in part because, uh, you know, the bipartisan coalition of those in the House who are going to support this was going to be big. Right. She also has the buffer within her district that even moderates in her district are probably not going to notice or be flummoxed by this particular uh, move that she made. And she's sitting in John Lewis's seat. So she's, of course, going to stand up for marginalized people and stand up for people who are oppressed. This symbolically fits what she's going to do. And for Marjorie Taylor Greene, for those who are surprised that she's done this, she also, you know, supported Kevin McCarthy against the rest of the Freedom Caucus, right? Because it was probably personally and professionally beneficial to her. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still struck by uh, Patricia Murphy's column when she spent the day with her and Marjorie Taylor Greene didn't act like she was on Newsmax all the time. Right. So we, I think we have to give Greene credit uh, for uh, the fact that 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 she does code switch um, and, and, and knows how to pivot depending on the context that she's in. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that in terms of one, her her loyalty to the Republican Party is still very much intact. Um, and it's and it's highlighted in evidence by this particular vote. So, you know, I went back and looked at her DW nominate scores. We were talking about Chuck's late colleague, Keith Poole, and the measure that they uh, that he and Howard Rosenthal used to try to look at sort of ideological polarity, which is really about party line voting. And Rich McCormick is actually sort of like the most loyal Republican sort of party line voter um, in Congress right now. Um, but Marjorie Taylor Greene is sort of like, you know, in the top 10 or 15 people of folks who consistently vote with the Republican Party line. So, you know, as much as she looks like a maverick and as, as for all the attention that she gets, she's a loyal soldier. And so because it's personally beneficial to her to support Kevin McCarthy, it's not surprising that she would back him on this bill that he and his lieutenants negotiated. Alan, uh, before I, I bring you back in, let's just, add, yeah. Alan, let me just amplify something uh, Andra said to, and make it uh, more clear to our listeners. Uh, Chuck initially said that uh, uh, one of our Democratic members of the delegation had voted against it. That was Nakima Williams in the 5th District. And as Andra points out, mm -hmm. she said she cast her vote against 
the deal uh, because of the uh, added requirement of work in exchange for food stamps for people in the age 50 and I think to 54 uh, bracket. But go ahead, Alan. Yeah, in general, the opposition within the Democratic Party to this, uh, both in the House and Senate, came from the far left. There were only a handful of Democratic senators who voted against this. One of them was Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, but but I think when you look at uh, the votes against in the Senate, especially, I think it's pretty clear that a lot of those were cast knowing full well that this was going to pass easily. Um, mm -hmm. And so there was there was really no no risk that these votes were going to affect the, the outcome. But kind of interesting to me is that in addition to the opposition that we saw coming from the far right within the Republican Party, we also saw like, I think, like every leading Republican presidential candidate opposed the compromise. Um, Trump came out against it. Tr Trump's, or, Trump actually came out and said he should have, you know, the Republicans made a mistake here. They should have just let, let us default. So that's just default, you know, as if somehow that would have been a responsible thing to do. But he's not the only one. I mean, DeSantis, uh, you know, came along, went along with that. Uh, Pence, uh, Mike Pence said it was a bad deal. You know, we, uh, Republicans should oppose it. You know, so I think uh, when you look at the Republican presidential candidates and, and that that what they're thinking about uh, right now is what is the message that's going to appeal to the Republican base? What's the message that's going to appeal to Republican primary voters? And I think when you look at Republican primary voters, it's probably uh, standing up, uh, opposing this is probably something that may actually help you in, in, in a Republican primary. Um, before we take a break, Chuck, I want to go back to this question of winners and, and losers, if we think there were any. And, and I want to pick up on President Biden, because nothing the president has been able to do in his first term, at, except for the very early days, has done anything to notch up his approval ratings. He continues to be way underwater. And as we just talked about at the top of the show, these terrific job reports that we've seen sporadically during his administration certainly haven't helped his approval rating. The question here is perhaps the same. He guided through a piece of legislation that protects a lot of what Democrats cared about in the face of, for a while, what was a really harsh Republican uh, 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 efforts to overturn what he had done. The question is, at what point will he get credit, if ever, for this? I'm not sure he ever will. I think uh, what we see here is that Republicans, beginning with Donald Trump back in 2019, maybe, has very effectively defined Joe Biden as being a bumbler, as being not competent, as uh, not having the mental facility anymore. And every now and then he demonstrates uh, some physical problems, like like his stumble yesterday. So, yeah, I I I just don't think that Biden is ever going to be seen as being you know competent, kind of on top of the game, uh, you know, ready to to do another term. So Republicans have done this very very effective job of defining him, and that's interesting. And in that Biden had been on the scene for fifty years. Now we often talk about when there's a new candidate comes on the stage. You know, if the opposition can define that candidate before the candidate can define themselves, then that's usually a winning strategy. You know, Biden served as vice president, all these things, and yet still Republicans are able to define him in such negative fashion. Andra, before we get to a break, one last comment. Sure. I mean, the bumbling frame 
frame had been out for a while. And so, it, you know, certain things have happened that have reinforced that. I think, you know, Biden's biggest problem is, is that he ran on competence. And I think what people heard when he said competence and change was, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it look easy. And the problem is, is that this is hard and he couldn't make it look easy. And we saw how the sausage was made and we didn't want to see that. And he's being penalized for that, for, you know, and, and in some questions, I think we have to ask ourselves whether or not we're actually being fair um, in our assessment in that particular way. All right, before we get to the break, and I know we're late, Natalie Mendenhall, but give us a couple minutes here. Jim, uh, as an example of the ability that Republicans have to uh, paint Biden in the worst possible light, Nancy Mace, the Republican from South Carolina, uh, sent out a message on social media when they first saw the compromise, the whole House saw the compromise that had been achieved. She wrote out, and I'm not quoting her exactly, but essentially what she said is, the president can't even find his pants, and yet he whipped us in this uh, uh, bargaining uh, uh, that's taken place. Uh, that's an example of what Chuck and Andre are talking about. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and it's one one instance where 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 Biden kind of overcomes the the the, the frame that's been placed around him. I, I I would just add to 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 what Biden gets out of this is is this was not this was an act of preservation. For Biden, the Democrats did not win actually anything. They did not gain anything, but they were able to pre preserve a couple of 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 Biden's very very important uh, initiatives, uh, and and that is say the 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 the, the tuition repayment uh, 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 program that he's got that's now before the courts, and and his infrastructure bill. Uh, Republicans sought to take it apart. He stopped that. Um, and Alan, again, last word before we get to the break. Um, uh, the 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 thing that got the most, uh, I think, uh, anger from progressive Democrats was adding this work requirement for a certain number of of uh, people over age fifty. But even at yeah. that, at the same time, the compromise expanded the availability of food right. stamps for a large group of people as well: veterans, yeah. the homeless, yeah. and others. Exactly. And, and I think if you, if you go back just a few days, what you saw was a lot of criticism of Biden and the way he was handling these negotiations by Democrats who are unhappy. They were talking about how the Republicans are winning the messaging war. In the end, I think Biden comes out of this looking very good, shows that he is, in fact, a very skilled negotiator. Whether it helps him politically remains to be seen. But losing on this, I think, would have harmed him politically. All right. Uh, thank you for a terrific conversation uh, about what's been happening on the biggest news story of the week in Washington. Now we're going to get to that first break of the show. Back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, Alan Abramowitz, Charles Bullock, and Andre Gillespie join us uh, for the show today. Let's talk presidential politics, the Republican uh, 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 candidates who are uh, vying uh, for the Republican nomination for the White House. Jim Galloway, the conventional wisdom has been for quite some time now that the best way for uh, uh, 
Donald Trump to be defeated is if there's a very narrow field of Republican opponents. And that harkens back, of course, to 2016, when one by one he picked off that enormous field of Republicans, starting with Jeb Bush, who went into that race as the uh, leading candidate uh, by far in most of the polling. So Republicans talked about we got to keep the field small. Well, Jim, that isn't happening. It At least nine candidates you know, are jumping into this thing. Next, next week, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, and the great North Dakota governor, uh, Doug Burgum, uh, jumping into the race. And that's not the end of it. Um, there will be more to follow, we think. Jim? Yeah, watch this guy, Burgum. He could be trouble for Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, it, 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 look, it's 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 it is in many senses, in 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 one sense, a replay of 2016 because you just because the way that that Trump can dominate a stage is is just unparalleled, I think, in in modern politics. Uh, it is it is not always uh, a happy thing to watch, but nonetheless, it's 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 uh, it's 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 something that grabs audience audiences. It, it grabs the GOP base. Uh, now the question is to, for me: Does does do, do his troubles, uh, which could start compounding very very quickly? I mean the 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 the, the Fulton County investigation, the the uh, the uh, the the DC investigation into the January sixth incident, uh, uh, his his troubles in 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 Manhattan. Do they start to give fodder uh, to to? To candidates who are actually willing to attack attack him in a much more aggressive manner than that happened in 2016. Now, if you remember, I mean, basically the attacks of 2016 were 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 kind of half hearted. I'm, it, it, uh, I remember uh, the the one that stands out for me is is Marco Rubio. Uh, who was in Georgia campaigning, and and of course he he made light of uh, the size of Donald Trump's hands. Uh, as as something that 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 said that spoke to Trump's manliness, uh, Trump fired back, and and uh, the, the the senator from Florida just just uh, uh, quietly uh, silenced himself. But if if you're so if you're going to take down Donald Trump this time, I think you have to once you wade into that fight. I think it's something that you cannot stop. Uh, and and that's actually that's that's one reason why I'll, I'll be I'm more interested in seeing what Chris Christie does, the new uh, former New Jersey governor, than what Mike Pence does. Yeah, um, Chuck, I think Jim would say that because Chris Christie has shown no hesitation to attack Donald Trump. He's done it for some time after being a firm ally of Trump's earlier on in the uh, Trump administration. Um, but the question, I guess, given that Ron DeSantis so far has been the closest contender to Trump in the field, although most polls show a pretty big gap between them, is it DeSantis who has to be the first guy to really start taking on Trump more aggressively? He's kind of moved in that direction, but what are the perils of continuing that uh, further? Let me begin with uh, an ancient analogy from Georgia, which no one will remember. But... Uh, Gene Talmadge, a four-time elected governor of Georgia, had 100,000 voters who would stick with him through anything. So in that sense, he is analogous to Donald Trump, who's got really at least a third, maybe more than that, of the Republican electorate who will stick through him thick and thin. What we're seeing in polling here in Georgia is that, yeah, most Republicans here would say they would vote for him once again. 
So he's got this firmly committed base. So what happens? Well, again, if we try to take a lesson from 2016, in those early primaries, Trump was getting a third of the vote, but he gets 62% of the delegates. In South Carolina, he gets a third of the vote, but some of the, some of the uh, Republican primaries, winner take all, so he gets all of their delegates. Uh, he, on Super Tuesday, he wins seven of 11 states. Highest share of the vote he gets anywhere is 40%. He exceeds that in two states, and this is a strange combination. It's Alabama and Massachusetts, but those are where he does best. And yet, although he breaks 40% in only two states, he gets 43% of all delegates decided then. He doesn't get a majority in the Republican primaries until he gets to what was in his home state of New York. And by that point, it's pretty much all over. So, yeah, what the Trump campaign is counting on is that, yeah, Ron DeSantis is a leading opponent. But, you know, there will be a few percentage points that will go to Chris Christie. Maybe even this guy from North Dakota may be able to find a few percentage points. And so if indeed the opposition continues to be split, given those kind of Republican rules, especially in the winner-take-all states, Trump can very easily you know, roll up, get the delegates he needs, and not be even breaking 50%. Now, I think he'll do better this time as a former president than he did eight years ago, but he doesn't necessarily have to win the states with majorities. All he has to do is get that headline that says Trump wins again, no matter how narrow the margin is and how much below 50% it is. So that's why he is so well positioned as this field becomes more crowded. Um, Andre and then Alan, jump in. That, that's uh, rules mattering. And so, you know, here's the, the rules about uh, winner-take-all versus proportional representation, which Democrats resolved in the late 80s, right, are, are have, have consequences in terms of who's able to win elections. You know, we saw, like, Republicans attempt to try to raise those thresholds um, after, after Ron Paul um, in, in the 2000s, and all it did was actually make it easier for the primary winner to take more votes. So like these are, are are things that you have to think about in terms of getting into the nitty gritty and the details. I think part of the reason why you see so many people jumping into the field is that they do see the possibility that Trump isn't going to make it right because he's going to be legally embattled and have to pull himself out. And they don't see a resurgent Ron DeSantis yet. And so because they've seen him decline and they don't see him building momentum, they're like, yeah, well, we're not sure that number two is it. So I might as well throw my hat in the ring because I could possibly be plan C and maybe I will be able to get there. And then there are the people who are just running for vanity. So if you look at somebody like a Vivek Ramaswamy, right, like he's not going to be president of the United States. I think he knows that, but he at least gets to sort of, you know, burnish his name ID and that'll translate to something else later. And I think for somebody who might be ambitious, like a Doug Burgum, that's the other reason to do this because he's not Christy Nome, so he's not a household name even in Republican circles. So that's going to, you know, be something that's gonna. This is gonna be something that's gonna make him better known. Alan, yeah. So I think I think uh, uh, Chuck made the very important point that the, the Republican rules and uh, Andre reinforced this as well uh, strongly favor the front runner uh, because of the uh, the uh, the numbers of, of winner take all primaries um, and the, the only hope for someone like Ron DeSantis. Uh, is that he can force out a lot of these other candidates very early on. Um, that if they all do very poorly, you know, in Iowa, New Hampshire, which is still loom large on the Republican side, not on the Democratic side, but Iowa and New Hampshire is still crucial uh, in, in setting the stage. If, uh, you know, uh, uh, Trump and DeSantis come in one, two, 
uh, in those early states, and the others are far behind. And then some of those other candidates drop out, and then it comes down to a one-on-one contest between Trump and DeSantis. Uh, you know, then maybe DeSantis has has a chance. Um, I think that's not very likely, um, but it's 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 possible. Uh, I don't see any other Republican candidate at this point having much of a chance. I don't think Chris Christie is really serious about trying to win the nomination. I think he's in this to go after Trump. Uh, I think he just wants to take down Trump. Um, so, and the other thing is, you know, with all these legal uh, uh, problems that Trump is facing, and he, you know, it's pretty likely that we're going to be looking at additional indictments, you know, coming up this summer in the Georgia case, probably fairly soon in the federal, the two federal cases involving, you know, both the documents, uh, which, which there's just more and more damning evidence that's coming out, you know, every day about that, and, and then about the insurrection itself, about his role in inciting that. Um, will that hurt Trump? I say probably not, because what we've seen so far is that it just reinforces the loyalty of his base to him because they see him as the victim. They see him as, you know, uh, being unfairly uh, attacked by uh, his political enemies. Uh, by the establishment, uh, by the deep state, uh, and and this is all this, and he'll, you know, I don't see any indication that he would drop out. Um, so maybe, you know, that maybe that will change, but I, I think in all likelihood, uh, if anything, it just strengthens strengthens uh, Trump's hand. Jim, before I get to the final break of the show, I don't remember if it was the Bulwark or some other uh, 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 publication that is conservative but anti-Trump uh, created a scenario that doesn't seem far-fetched based on uh, what Alan just tired of talk just, just talked about. Um, it's it's an image of Trump at a rally sometime next, maybe next summer, early next summer, having been indicted in any number of uh, cases, uh, going on stage at the rally raising his pant leg to reveal the ankle monitor that he is wearing <laughs> and the crowd going wild with enthusiasm. And you know, that sounds incredibly far-fetched, but it really does go to the point that what Trump said five years ago or so, he could kill somebody on Fifth Avenue, seems to still possibly be true for his supporters today. Yeah, I'm going to riff off uh, uh, something that Chuck Bullard said about Gene Talmadge, you know, getting caught up in scandal and and then not affecting his his base. I think the line, Chuck, wasn't it? Uh, yes, I stole, but I stole for you. Stole for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's, a, that's a, a perfect way to end the segment. Look, when we come back, let's talk about how we see this all playing out in our state, Georgia. We'll be right back. Andrew Gillespie, the gathering of state Republicans at their convention in Columbus next weekend increasingly is clearly going to be a meeting of MAGA Georgia Republicans. David Schaefer, the chairman of the uh, party who will relinquish that seat in a new election, uh, one of the fake electors. Uh, Mike Pence has dropped out. He will not give a speech at the uh, convention. And so uh, they've invited instead uh, Carrie Lake, the failed Republican candidate mm. for governor in Arizona, one of the MAGAist of all candidates in that 2022 election cycle. And yet Trump remains incredibly popular here. So here's my question to start off this part of the conversation. What does what is, what is, um, Brian Kemp do? Presuming that we get 
closer and closer to a nomination for Donald Trump. And when we watch the the Republican uh, uh, primary play out here in Georgia, what is what does Brian Kemp do? Does he find another candidate? Does he stay out of it? I find that to be a really interesting question about him. You know, this is something that other states are grappling with. And so we've seen the MAGA wing of the Republican Party take over state and local Republican Party operations in various states. So on in some respect, it's not surprising that Carrie Lake is now going to be a keynote speaker um, at the Georgia Republican Convention. I think the question is, is, is that, you know, what we've seen Governor Kemp do is to create a parallel organization, right, based on his experience and based on his connections. That's actually, you know, personally beneficial to him and to his allies. But I think the larger question question is long term, does this end up doing damage to the, uh, the broad Republican base in Georgia by fracturing it and then letting the most extreme voices actually have official positions within the party? Um, you know, you know, he might be trying to burn itself out, like, you know, when people see the likes of Carrie Lake or Candace Taylor, right, who's got a local party position, you know, who's espousing, you know, really bizarre things, even more bizarre than she did when she ran for governor. Um, you know, do, do people see that and then do they recoil or do these people become entrenched and then actually end up shaping policy and shaping strategy for a generation to come. I think that that's the big deal. I think for himself, he, he goes the, the parallel route, but from an institution building standpoint, this should give everybody pause. Alan? Well, I'm surprised to hear Andra talking about um, someone who believes in the flat earth theory as espousing extreme views. Um, referring here to Candace Taylor. Um, I just wanted to make sure that we brought that up at some point. Uh, no, Kemp, Kemp's not going to be there, of course. Kemp, Kemp is ignoring this. I, I, th I think his strategy is clearly to try to ignore what's going on within the, the state party organization as, as much as possible um, and, and for as long as possible. Uh, and, and eventually, you know, he, he probably will be forced to, to endorse the eventual Republican nominee, even if it's Trump. Um, I can't imagine him him not doing that, um, but I think it'll be you know he'll he'll try to you know minimize his involvement uh, in that for the, for the time being. But it, this is a real problem for Republicans. I think we're seeing this all over the country, um, as Andrew pointed out that uh, the MAGA uh, there's a MAGA takeover of the Republican uh, apparatus that's taking place here, and to the extent that uh, it, it results in the nomination eventually of, of of candidates who are aligned with that wing of the party, I think that's a real threat to the party. And I see Carrie Lake as a rising star in the megaverse, um, you know, and, and, and a potential running mate for Donald Trump. Um, Chuck, Andre talked about if, if the state party is taken over by uh, the far right, uh, but but it's really a matter of when, isn't it? I mean, the delegates that are going to the convention next week, many of them are far-right activists in the Republican Party. Candace Taylor, a district chair. What, what we're referring to is the fact that Candace Taylor, who ran for governor as a Republican, was on a podcast not long ago and um, affirmed that the earth is flat as a pancake. And she's very upset by, quote, all the globes everywhere. Everywhere there's globes. You see them all the time. It's constant. My children will be like, Mama, globe, 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 globe. That's what they do. They brainwash you. And these are the people who are going to be uh, standouts at the convention next weekend. 
And that's why I would say it's not if or when the MAGA group takes over. It's now. They have taken it over. They control the party. And that's why Mike Pence doesn't want to show up, because he knows if he does, he's going to get booed. So that's not a way to really in stage of your official candidacy to show up in Georgia, a swing state, and get booed off the stage. So, of course, he doesn't want to come and participate in something like that. So, yeah, um, Kemp, I think, Andrew suggested this. Uh, he can do well. He can raise money. Uh, he can pursue his objectives. But what about other Republicans? They're going to have to, you know, pledge their troth to something either to uh, whatever uh, uh, Brian is able to set up on his own and hope to get funding out of that. Or they're going to be attached to this increasingly far-right Republican Party. And what we've seen in this last election in Georgia is that, yeah, Republicans won every statewide seat except for that of the U.S. Senate. But the Republicans who did best were those who were estranged from Trump. So Brad Raffensperger, percentage of his vote goes up 4%. Uh, Brian Kemp up 3%. And the two who do worst are those who are closest to Trump. So, yeah, Warner loses. But then also our lieutenant governor barely wins, and our lieutenant governor is going to the convention is very, very close to Trump. Jim? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, on, on, on what does Brian Kemp do? I mean, Georgia has a Georgia politicians have a fine, fine tradition of going fishing uh, when they disagree with their with 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 their direction of their party. So so I, I think we, we might see a little bit of that. Uh, but 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 to Chuck's point is is yes this is this is still the republican party this is still the this is still the infrastructure you need to win and that's why i think yes people are going to be looking at at uh at at, at carrie lake at donald trump and um asa, asa Hunch, hutchinson i think is 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 going to be there as well presidential wise uh but i think the person really to watch uh at this republican convention is going to be bird jones because if 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 a mega controlled party has a future in Georgia, I think he's he has well positioned himself to be its leader. Um, so it's going to be fascinating. Is there any? I know I'm pulling this out of thin air, so please tell me if I'm wrong. Is there anything that could allow for us to have competing Republican delegations at the GOP national convention? Next summer, if in fact the MAGA forces do control the party apparatus, Chuck, you're the the guy with the greatest background on this sort of thing. <laughs> well, Georgia has done that, did it back in 1952. Yeah, but I would think the party rules are such now that no, they wouldn't be able to. But then, hey, you know, they cobble together a different set of a, a presidential electors. So. I guess it doesn't mean you couldn't send someone, and, and maybe because Georgia did not jump on this opportunity Democrats offered to move the selection process forward, it may be pretty much all over by the time Georgia votes, uh, and so that uh, you know whatever comes out of the, the presidential primary in Georgia may not be that meaningful, and so maybe you could cobble together an alternative set of delegates and claim that they have some legitimacy. Wouldn't that be fun for all of us to get to talk yeah. about? Uh, I'm afraid we're completely out of time uh, for today's show, but uh, what a great way for us to end the week on Political Rewind. So uh, Professors Charles Bullock, Andre Gillespie, and Alan Abramowitz, thank you so much for a terrific discussion today. Jim Galloway, of course, always glad to have you as my partner on these Friday shows. Uh, that's it for us. 
Uh, we're back here again on Monday. But in the meantime, I hope everybody out there has a terrific weekend. Um, let me just say thank you to Victoria Evans Cash, to uh, Buddha, to Chase McGee, and to Natalie Mendenhall for their work behind the scenes. I hope you all have a good weekend, too. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and yes, be kind to one another. Bye, everybody.